Hello everyone and welcome to episode 13 of Intermediate English with me, Benjamin. Today we're going to be talking about something which plays a really important role in people's perceptions of Britain and British culture around the world. And what we're going to be talking about is British cuisine, British food. So this episode is a little bit different from some of the last few episodes, but I think it'll answer some of your questions about British food, something we've talked about a little bit before, but now we're going to focus on it a lot more and to ask whether the negative reputation that it sometimes has is really justified. talk about British food, it can be quite hard to know what exactly we're talking about. So you could compare it, for example, to French cuisine, which has strict rules, very fixed rules, and a certain number of core dishes, which are central to French cuisine. British food, however, is harder to define. In 2001, the British Foreign Secretary, the member of government who is responsible for foreign affairs outside of the UK, Robin Cook, he said that Britain's true national dish was the chicken tikka masala, a curry dish. You might be wondering, how did we get to the stage where our national dish doesn't seem very British? And yet the food that is considered British is regarded around the world as being a bit of a joke. Well, I think the answer to this is more complex than you might think. And to try and answer it, we're going to start off by finding out what British food has been in the past and what it is today. records that we have about British food are from the time when Britain was absorbed into the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. The Romans already had a large and pre-existing empire before Britain was brought into it. And the Romans already had a pre-existing food culture as well. But when they came to Britain, they realised that Britain had a similar climate to other parts of the empire, like northern France and parts of Germany, and that it had fertile soil. It had soil where plants could grow easily. Nevertheless, a lot of the dishes that the Romans wanted to cook and prepare couldn't be made with the native ingredients in Britain, with the ingredients that are specific to Britain and that grow here 
naturally before they arrived. So what they did is they introduced a lot of new ingredients. For example, they brought apples, plums and grapes to give you some idea of the fruit. And in terms of vegetables, they brought asparagus, celery, cucumber, garlic, onion, parsnip, peas and many other vegetables. A lot of those ingredients are things that we think of as being really quintessentially English, really typically English. For example, apples are a big part of British produce, British exports, the things that we sell to other countries. And if you look at those vegetables, a lot of those are vegetables that are at the root of lots of British food and British dishes. So the Romans brought with them a number of foods and recipes which fundamentally changed British cuisine. Following the Romans, British food was influenced again by another wave of migration, which was the migration of the Normans in 1066. This event, the Norman Conquest, meant that a lot of dishes that were very popular in medieval France and Normandy, the part of France that the Normans came from, became popular in Britain as well. So, for example, spices were used a lot in Europe, and the arrival of the Normans brought these exotic spices into Britain. This led to Britain developing a role in the Middle Ages in the spice trade, the trade in spices. Some of the other things that were introduced during this period were foods like oranges, carrots, sugar. Again, three things which play a role in British food afterwards. So it wasn't only migration which changed British cuisine and expanded it. There were also cultural changes which made a significant difference. For example, in the 1500s, there was the Protestant Reformation, which started to have a big impact on religion and other aspects of society from the 1530s onwards. The Protestant Reformation was primarily about religion and with some of the religious ideas came other changes in life. For example, the Protestantism of the time valued simplicity above complexity. And this led to a desire for simple food and plain food. And there were similar movements across Northern Europe and later in America as well. And this was influenced by biblical ideas. Also, other biblical ideas were important. For example, when to eat certain food. And it's from this time that we have a tradition, which is still respected in lots of Britain, of eating fish on Fridays, for example. That has a theological basis, you could say. There are elements of theology and of religious tradition 
which mean that certain foods are eaten at certain times. But this is also a period in the 15 and 1600s when there are certain religious festivals that start to have their own connected dishes. For example, Christmas. In this time, turkey starts to be eaten more at Christmas, often accompanied with roasted beef or ham, potatoes, other roasted vegetables. Other Christmas dishes which emerge at this time are mince pies, which are a sort of sweet pie, normally very small, filled with dried fruits and spices. At the same time, we have Christmas cake, fruit cake, which has lots of icing in it. There are versions of Christmas cake which are popular around the world. And finally, we have Christmas pudding, which is a pudding made of dried fruits, eggs, spices, and normally quite a lot of alcohol. So, like some of the things we were talking about before, this has a basis in theology. So, the Christmas pudding has 13 ingredients, which is supposed to represent Jesus and the 12 apostles, his 12 disciples. I would really recommend trying Christmas pudding, but I should tell you that in my experience, it doesn't always go down very well with non-British people. Sometimes the flavours are just too peculiar for non-British palates. However, I would still recommend you try it because I think it's fantastic. And during this period, there are a number of other British desserts which are developed, such as carrot cake, which we see from the first time in a 1591 recipe. Back then, sugar was really expensive, being something that couldn't easily be produced in Northern Europe. So sweet vegetables such as carrots were used in place of sugar as a sweetener. So this original carrot cake recipe doesn't have sugar in it. Instead, it has carrots. We also have recipes for rice pudding, and we have those as early as 1615, which shows that rice pudding has a really long tradition in Britain, although there are lots of other types of rice pudding in lots of other food cultures around the world. The centuries after this are defined by again, lots of social and cultural changes in Britain and the emigration of British people around the world, British people moving around the world and at the same time immigration from other parts of the world. So this is a big period of movement of people and with them food and recipes. So, for example, we have food from the Americas. We have peppers and the potato, first recorded in Britain in 1586. Tomatoes as well in the same period, although tomatoes were not regarded as food. They were regarded as something you could just leave around the house that had an ornamental function. It was there to make your kitchen look attractive. They were only eaten a couple of hundred years later in the 1750s. We also have more spices and herbs 
coming into British cuisine. And, like we said, a very important dish in Britain. We have the first curry in 1773. And a few decades later, the first Indian restaurant in Britain in 1809. Why Indian food? Because India was such an important part of the British Empire. It was called the jewel in the crown of Britain, and it played a very important role in British culture and in the British Empire. We also have tea from 1610, with coffee and hot chocolate from the 1650s. All three of these drinks were very important for British culture. However, British people made changes to these drinks. Whereas they were traditionally not drunk with milk, British people started drinking them with milk, something that other people around the world still find quite shocking in my experience. There's also ice cream, which was first recorded being served in 1672 in Britain. Ice cream had been around for longer than that, much longer. But keeping it cold required technology and it required money. So ice cream was something that was very complicated and expensive to consume. So all of these things, tea, coffee, hot chocolate, ice cream, all of them have a kind of status symbol. They become status symbols in Britain. To eat ice cream or to drink tea, coffee or hot chocolate shows that you have a certain status. We also have a number of dishes that are related to the empire because they're related to important figures. For example, we have Victoria sponge cake, named after Queen Victoria in the second half of the 19th century, second half of the 1800s, the queen who had a soft spot for cakes. She enjoyed eating cakes with her afternoon tea. There is a suggestion that the Victoria sponge cake was created to celebrate the invention of baking powder in Britain in 1843, allowing the cake to rise higher than was previously possible. That takes us to the 20th century. All of these dishes continued throughout the first half of the 20th century, but this was a century that was marked by war in Britain. The First World War and the Second World War left a really big impact on Britain, cut off from Europe as an island. Like many other countries, Britain suffered a lot during the war from the lack of trade and the inability to feed itself. During the Second World War in particular, rationing was used in order to limit the amount of food and the types of food that people could buy and therefore consume. We call that rationing. And rationing went on not just until 1945, when the Second World War ended, but it actually went on for 
a number of years after that. So you had a whole generation who grew up during that period with a very small palate, with only a small number of foods that they could have access to and that they could buy and eat. And this leads us to an explanation of where a negative reputation of British cuisine comes from. Because anyone born between the 1930s and the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, would have a memory of rationing and not be exposed to the wide set of ingredients that, in fact, their parents were exposed to and that people in other countries might be exposed to. So you have a whole generation who's raised on a limited set of ingredients. The argument goes that this led to a lack of interest in experimenting with food and that it led to a kind of closed-mindedness about cuisine, a lack of a desire to try different kinds of food and to experiment with food. But the second half of the 20th century does challenge this narrative. The second half of the 20th century is defined, I would argue, by a renewed interest in other food cultures, a new interest in other cuisines. It's defined also by a number of personalities and TV chefs who are very well known around the world. Jamie Oliver, Gordon Ramsay, Nigella Lawson. These are well-known names outside of the UK. So what defines British food today? I have to give you a little disclaimer here. There are lots of classic dishes I'm not going to discuss. Things like shepherd's pie, bangers and mash, cottage pie, fish and chips, roast beef, Sunday roast. There's a reason for that. And that is because I am not an expert on this. I've been vegetarian for pretty much all my life. So I'm not going to sit here and talk to you about meat. Or at least I'm not going to focus on it. But I think there's so much more to British cuisine than those dishes I just mentioned. Perhaps one of the best-known British dishes is the full English breakfast or the all-day breakfast or the fry-up full English, full breakfast. There are lots of different names depending on where you are in the UK. What does this mean? Often bacon, fried, poached or scrambled eggs, tomatoes, mushrooms, bread or toast, and sausages. You could also have black pudding, baked beans, bubble and squeak, which is potatoes and cabbage. In Ireland, in Northern Ireland, it's common to have potato falls, which is a sort of potato bread with the meal. And it's often served with tea or coffee. And if you visit the UK, there are all sorts of places where you can get a breakfast like this, often at any time of the day, which is why it's called an all-day breakfast. There's another dish which... I suppose you could say that this isn't so much a dish as a meal. You can eat it at any time of the day, unlike breakfast or lunch. One other meal that is very connected to British cuisine 
and has a specific time is afternoon tea. And it's in the name when you're supposed to eat it. Afternoon tea. This can include sandwiches, cakes, quiche, and of course, accompanied by a good cup of tea. And there's another aspect to contemporary British cuisine, which is very important, which is Anglo-Indian food. We say Anglo-Indian food. In fact, very often we're talking about food that is prepared, cooked by people from Pakistan or from Bangladesh. But we tend to be a bit lazy with that and just call it Indian food or Anglo-Indian food. In the 60s and 70s, there was a wider interest in this kind of food by British people. Restaurants that had previously catered just for Indian people started to get a wider audience, a broader clientele. And you have a number of places in different cities that start to specialise in this kind of food. In Manchester, you have the Curry Mile. In Birmingham, you have the Balti Triangle. You have the Curry Capital of Bradford. And in London, you have Brick Lane. These became really iconic places to go for what we call an Indian. Again, if you visit Britain, this is something I would really recommend because, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, this has become a really central part of British cuisine. There are some signs that this part of British cuisine is having a difficult time at the moment. The future isn't necessarily so safe. Thinking of Brick Lane, for example, London has become very expensive for rental, just as it's expensive for renting a house or a flat. It's also expensive for renting the space for a restaurant. And that's something, the expense of London, that I've discussed in previous episodes, especially episode two, Living in London. The industry is also threatened because there are changing patterns in what British people want to eat. A large number of other cuisines have become very popular in Britain. There are younger generations who are brought up with these cuisines and in Indian or Pakistani Bangladeshi families who don't necessarily want to go into catering and would rather do other things. Equally, in 2020, coronavirus has made life very difficult for restaurants. And finally, it's very difficult for some of these restaurants to get people to work in them from abroad. In 2011, there were changes to the immigration system in Britain. And for chefs from outside the EU, they had to have at least five years experience and a guaranteed minimum income of £28,000 to come and work in the UK. And that's a very high bar to cross. And as a result, it became very difficult for these restaurants to hire the chefs that they wanted to hire. I still think that 
Anglo-Indian food is a really important part of British cuisine. Like other parts of British cuisine, Anglo-Indian food has played a really important part in British history. But for it to continue, it needs support. And as you can see, there are lots of short-term and long-term reasons why this part of British cuisine is having a difficult time at the moment. So what can we say about British food to sum all of this up? Well, I think the first thing to say is that food is a story about people. And so British food is a story about British people, wherever they came from originally. In the same way, a negative reputation that's built up around British cuisine is the result of the hard times endured by British people. The cuisine, most of all, is a story of immigration. It's a story of people and mixing of different cultures and cuisines. British cuisine is, I think, one of the most open-minded in the world. It can accept new elements, and British people are very proud of parts of British cuisine, which originally came from other parts of the world. And just before we finish the podcast, I'd like to leave you with something that hopefully you can make. It's a recipe for a dish which I haven't mentioned yet, but which is very important in Britain, and that's the crumble. So what you're going to need is 700 grams of pears, peeled and cubed, cut into cubes. You're going to need 100 grams of golden sugar, any kind of sugar is okay, to be honest. You're going to need 250 grams of blackberries, 200 grams of plain flour, 100 grams of unsalted butter, cut into small pieces, 85 grams of pistachio nuts, shelled and roughly chopped, 100 grams of brown sugar, and, if you like, some ice cream. So what you have to do is heat your oven to 190 degrees or 170 degrees if it's a fan oven. Place the pears in a medium-sized pan, add the granulated sugar and cook on a medium heat until the fruit starts to soften and release its juices, which should take about 10 minutes. Then add the blackberries and bring it back to the boil and remove it from the heat. Spoon the fruity mixture into four individual oven-proof ramekins or one large baking dish. Then place the flour, the butter and a pinch of salt in a large bowl and rub it together with your fingers until the mixture resembles coarse breadcrumbs, thick, large breadcrumbs. Add the pistachios and the brown sugar, then stir to combine it. This is your crumble. Sprinkle the crumble evenly over the cooked fruit. You could do this a day before you eat it, or you could freeze it for up to a month. But when you're ready to eat it, you bake it 
until it's golden on top for 20 to 25 minutes if it's a small dish, 40 minutes if you're making double quantities. If you're baking it from frozen, add about 15 minutes to your cooking time. Then remove it from the oven, let it cool a bit, and if you like, you can serve it with that ice cream I mentioned earlier.